Well, I don't have an outline for you tonight, but uh, if you're taking notes, you can write at the top of your note sheet this title, A Final Word on Suffering. The text tonight is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And we want to talk about a final word on suffering. I'll tell you why I use that title in just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you open God's word with me to that text. The reason um, we talk about a final word on suffering is because the word suffering and its derivatives are used 21 times in this letter. Think about that. In four short chapters, the concept, the idea of suffering and or persecution, trials, whatever word is used there, that word is used 21 times in this epistle. So why would be a good question. Why does Peter have so much to say about suffering? Because in Peter's day, it was not getting easier to be a Christian. It was not getting easier to be a follower of Christ. There was a price to be paid for declaring yourself as a follower of Christ. And that price kept increasing in Peter's day. These young Christians that Peter was writing to needed to know how to respond to what they were living through. They needed to know how to respond to suffering unjustly. How do you respond when you are, re- you are receiving undeserved suffering? And so Peter writes a lot in this letter because these people were living it. And they needed to know, how do we make it through? So the reason I say in this, uh, that the title is a final word on suffering is because as we're coming near the end of 1 Peter, this is the final time that Peter addresses that subject in this this, uh, epistle. Now, there's an interesting point before we get into the text that I want to call to your attention. I want you to remember something. It was Peter... Who at the, when he was faced with the possibility of suffering for the name of Christ, it was Peter who denied that he even knew Christ. You remember that story? You know, Jesus was arrested. Peter was identified as one of his followers. And when it looked like he might have to suffer too, when it looked like he may have to pay a price for being a follower of Christ, it was Peter who denied that he even knew Christ. And yet now, years later, Peter is not only willing to suffer, Peter is now preparing other believers to suffer as well. So what happened? I want you to put your finger there in 1 Peter if you found that text. And I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, there's actually two scriptures I want to call to your attention to try to get the perspective of Peter, the one who was a coward and denied that he knew Christ and wanted to do everything possible to avoid suffering. And now, when we come to 1 Peter, he's willing to suffer and preparing others to do likewise. What happened? Luke chapter 22, verse 31 and 32 if you're taking notes. Simon... Simon, this this is Jesus speaking. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. 
But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And watch this. Jesus knew that he would not fail, but he would stumble. And when you have turned back, what does he say to do? Strengthen your brothers. In essence, when Peter is writing this letter we call 1 Peter, that's what he's doing. He's fulfilling the command Jesus gave him. When you have turned back, that is after you deny me and after you uh, repent, and when you return back to me, Simon, after that, all of that's over, strengthen your brothers. And in essence, that's what Peter is doing as he wrote this epistle. But now, tie that text to one more. John chapter 21. John chapter 21. You know this very famous passage of Scripture, John chapter 21. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but let's just... This is where after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus meets with Peter because Peter has denied him. And Jesus is going to reinstate Peter as one of his ministers and as one of his leaders. And so verse 15, when they had finished eating, Simon said to Peter, or Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And watch this. Read carefully. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, we might question, well, what does that even mean? But thankfully, he gives us the answer in the next verse. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus, don't miss this. Jesus told Simon Peter, one day you're going to suffer too. One day you're going to pay the ultimate price. One day you will experience trials and persecution and one day you will be killed. Jesus told him this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, with all that in mind, here's what I want you to hear. Knowing full well what his future was, Peter, knowing full well what his future was, wrote to help other Christians to understand what their future may be also. Peter explained a special kind of persecution to the church. So now we come back to the book of 1 Peter. <clears throat> when we come to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, Peter is going to explain us to the congregation that he's writing to about a special kind of persecution they may have to endure. We get a hint of this in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the and then uh, he says, at the painful trial, you're suffering. 
Now, some of you have other translations. There's something besides painful trial. What does it say in other translations? Fiery ordeal. Remember that one. Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal. All right? Any other? Okay. The fiery ordeal or the fiery trial. So here's what, let me set the stage for you before we dig into the text. We looked at this many, many weeks ago, but let me remind you again. Up until this point, Christianity had been tolerated by Rome. Because Christianity was basically seen as a, a sect, <coughs> excuse me, a sect of Judaism. Up until this point, up until the writing of 1 Peter, Christianity was tolerated by the Roman officials. It's just a, another sect of Judaism in their, in their minds, in the minds of the Roman leaders. <clears throat> that attitude would change, though, towards Christians, and the fires of persecution would begin, actually would literally be ignited by a madman named Nero. When Peter wrote this letter, Nero was the Roman emperor. I believe that Peter saw, experienced, and anticipated the persecution that was ahead for the believers. He, he was in Rome. Peter was. He was in Rome when he wrote this letter. And he anticipated what was coming to the churches that were scattered. Remember how this letter begins. Uh, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter is in Rome and he sees the persecution of Christians starting in Rome. And he anticipates that this is going to be spreading like wildfire to the other regions where the other Christians are. And so he gave these Christian leaders and these Christian churches some advice on how to endure the fiery trial. Let, let me pause for a moment and remind you something else we talked about. <clears throat> Here in verse 1, uh, I'm sorry, verse 12, it talks about the painful trial. And as some of you have indicated, your other translations say fiery trial or fiery ordeal. Can I remind you what, what Nero did to start all of this and probably what Peter has in mind when he's writing these words? That Nero not only <clears throat> arrested Christians, he not only mistreated Christians, but he had a habit of taking Christians and tying them to a stake and covering them in tar and then setting them ablaze to use as torches for his garden parties. That was happening in Rome. And Peter anticipating that kind of persecution is going to spread to the other regions of the Roman Empire. He's writing to the Christians. And listen to what he says. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial or the fiery ordeal you are suffering. Don't be surprised. So, this is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Nobody likes hard times, and we don't even like talking about hard times and suffering. But, we need to talk about this. Let me ask you a question, though, before we get too far into this. 
I'm just curious because I was thinking about this as I was reading through the text today. I was thinking, have you, have you ever experienced persecution for your faith? Anybody ever experienced persecution on some level for your faith? I'm, what was it? Somebody joking or ridiculing you? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? All right. So ridiculed. Ridiculed. Anybody ever lost a job because of your stand for your Christian faith? Okay. Anybody ever had your property confiscated because of your Christian faith? I'm sure none of us. And certainly you've never been imprisoned or tortured because of your Christian faith. So here's the question. Well, first of all, would you, would you admit that we are blessed people? But here's the question. And this is a very good question. When we come to a text like this, is there a word for us? You say yes? I mean, we've never gone through that. I don't know anybody that's been burned at the stake. I don't know anybody that's been put in prison because of their faith. I've read stories of that, but I don't know of anybody personally. Nobody in my family has ever had their, their home taken away from them or Nobody's even lost a job because of their Christian faith. I, I don't know anybody that's been personally beaten or afflicted because of their Christian faith. So, is this text for us? And the answer is yes. A big capital Y-E-S. Yes. Listen to me, church. We can learn from their suffering. You see, I don't have to experience everything the Scripture teaches in order to learn from the Scriptures. Listen to, hear me, this, this is such an important point, not just for this text, but for the Bible in general. We can learn from their suffering. I don't have to experience everything the Scripture teaches in order to learn from those Scriptures. I don't have to go through what David went through with Bathsheba to learn from that encounter. I don't have to go through what Jonah went through to learn from that experience. I can learn through the example in scriptures so that I don't have to experience what they experience. Or if I do experience it, then I know how to handle it. I, I really think we need to be reminded sometimes, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And then it says, so that... So that the man of God or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or you could translate it this way. So that the man of God or the woman of God will be thoroughly equipped for what is ahead. We're fortunate that we've never encountered suffering and persecution like the New Testament church. But God still has a word for us today as well. Peter gave his friends and followers four pieces of, of advice about dealing with suffering. And yes, we've never gone through the fiery ordeal that they were going through or that they were facing. But there's still a word here for all of us about trials and suffering. Both now and for what's ahead. And so let me give you four things. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you the four points to write down. <clears throat> 
number one, and we're just going to go through the text verse by verse. Again, it's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Here's the first point, write down. Christians should expect trials. Christians should expect trials. Here, how, here is how Peter explains it, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. When you understand the historical background, that's an amazing statement. Don't, don't look at this as if something strange were happening to you. I know they just burned your father at the stake, but don't look at this as something strange that is happening. Now, what in the world did he mean? Well, throughout biblical history, the people of God have always suffered at the hands of an unbelieving world. Throughout biblical history, the people of God have always suffered at the hands of an unbelieving world. Job is a good example of that. Joseph is another good example in the Old Testament, those who suffered for their faith. And in Joseph's case, those who suffered literally at the hands of an unbelieving world. Joseph being put in prison for things he did not even do. And virtually all the Old Testament prophets, by the way, suffered for their faith. <coughs> in fact, I want you to put your finger there. Somebody find Matthew 5.12 and read it for me while I take another drink. Matthew 5.12. Excuse me. I apologize. Matthew 5.12. Who's got it? <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah. Jesus was saying to, the, to His followers early on in His ministry, uh, that, that was in, actually in the Sermon on the Mount, and early on in His ministry, He was talking about persecution. He was talking about what they were going to have to suffer for their faith. And he says, but let me remind you of something. Let me remind you that long before you ever got here, the Old Testament prophets suffered for their faith. You see, this is biblical history. And that is the people of God suffer judgment from the hands of the unbelieving world. They suffer punishment from the hands of the unbelieving world. Uh, by the way, Jesus taught His followers clearly that they should expect this. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. <clears throat> Jesus speaking to His disciples says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. So, so the translation here, the idea is, as Peter would say it, don't think this is strange that the world hates you. Don't think this is strange that they are persecuting you. They hated me and they persecuted me first. If the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. That's a special verse. That is why the world hates you. Because you're not like them. You're like me. Remember. The words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. That, that's why point number one is Christians should expect trials. 
And of course, Jesus suffered, as Peter tells us in chapter 3, leaving us an example to follow. And then finally, let me remind you, if you go with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writing to the New Testament church. Paul says this uh, in verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul was writing to New Testament believers, early church, and he says, I just want you to understand, this is not abnormal. This is normal. Persecution is normal, Paul was saying. To the point that everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. So as Christians, we should not be surprised by trials. We should actually expect them. And that's what Peter is saying in verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This has happened throughout biblical history. You're not the first and you won't be the last. That's what Peter was saying. You weren't the first, you won't be the last. Number two, if you're taking notes, number two is this. And this may be the hardest one of all. Number two is, Christians should rejoice in the midst of trials. Verses 13 and 14. This is where the hard stuff gets harder. Alright? I admit that to you because he says in verse 13, But, in contrast, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Enduring trials is one thing, right? But rejoicing in them is quite another. This seems to be kind of a paradox. How do you rejoice when you're going through something so hard? How do you rejoice when you're being persecuted for not doing anything wrong? How do you rejoice? And I think we get a picture of this in Acts chapter 16. Put your finger in First Peter and go with me. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 24 and 25. Well, I, I, let's start at verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped, and what's that next word, church? And after they had been, what's those next two words? Severely flogged. So we're talking about intense persecution. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. After being beaten and severely flogged and placed in prison, 
Paul and Silas in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that suffering, Paul and Silas were rejoicing, not in the fact that they were beaten or that they were jailed, but they were rejoicing in what they had experienced in Jesus. Um, Peter uses an interesting group of words here. Look at the text with me again, verse 13 and 14. (coughs) But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. When we suffer because of the gospel, we join with our Savior in suffering unjustly at the hands of sinners. It makes us realize that He went through so much more than than we would ever go through. But whenever you, you experience the kind of suffering Peter is talking about here, it's a reminder that the Lord did so for us. And did so to such a greater degree. But it's also a reminder that we suffer with Him. That we actually deepen our fellowship with Christ. Because we've had the experience of suffering with Him. You remember the story in the Old Testament. We don't have time to turn there. The story in the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there was three in the fire and then there wasn't. How many were in the fire? There's a fourth man in the fire. We can rejoice in trials because they lead us to a deeper fellowship with Christ. That's what the point Peter is making here. Or do you remember when Stephen was stoned and <clears throat> for his witness to the Sanhedrin and he gazed into heaven and he saw Jesus standing on his behalf beside the throne. We can rejoice in suffering because it identifies us with the suffering of Christ, the fellowship of Christ. When Paul stood trial for his life in Rome, though others had deserted him, Paul told Timothy how the Lord, quote, stood with him and strengthened him. Paul was telling Timothy about this ordeal, about this suffering, about this trial. But he was also telling Timothy about how the Lord stood with him. We can rejoice in trials because it leads us to a deeper fellowship. With Christ. (coughs) Here's how Peter says it. But rejoice, verse 13, that you participate in the sufferings of Christ (coughs) so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. And then he goes on to say this. This is beautiful. (coughs) Verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God. What's those last few words? The Spirit of the glory of God, what? Rest on Him. You can rejoice in trials because not only do they lead us to a deeper fellowship with Jesus, but we can rejoice in trials because they lead us to a deeper experience of the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit of God rests on Him. Let me show you this in Scripture in another place. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is highlighted in my Bible. Uh, I encourage you to highlight it in yours. You know this text. Chapter 12, verse 7, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
<clears throat> three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, watch this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power, so that Christ's power may, what? Rest on me. This idea of the Spirit of God resting on us and the power of Christ resting on us means that that he, He puts His settling hand on us. If you've ever had a small child, small child that has been sick or, or is upset or something, uh, many times you'll put your hand on that child trying to bring comfort. You'll put your hand on that child trying to communicate your presence and your care. You put your hand on that, your hand rests on them. It doesn't solve everything they're going through. It doesn't solve every problem. But your hand of concern rests on them. Peter says to these Christians who are going through a fiery trial, one of the reasons you can rejoice in the midst of the persecution is one, it will help you identify with Christ, the sufferings of Christ. You'll have special fellowship that you wouldn't have with Him any other way. But also, you will experience the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in a way you've never felt before too. That's why when you read history, church history, when people were often burned at the stake, they were not crying out in pain. They were crying out in praise. How do you explain that? That they're burning at the stake and they're crying out in praise because the Spirit of God, His hand rested on them. Let me quickly give you number, point number three. <clears throat> number three is this. Christians should examine our lives in the midst of trials. Peter makes the case that if you're going through trials, this is a time where there needs to be some self-reflection. This is a time where you need to do some self-examination. And this is the way he says it beginning in verse 15 through verses 18. Well, let me get back to the text. Alright. <clears throat> Chapter 15. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Here's what he says. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. <laughs> Peter said, let, let, let me just make sure I make one thing clear. I'm not talking about you getting in trouble and paying a price for that, right? I'm not talking about you suffering for something you deserve. You did something wrong and you deserve punishment. I, he said, I'm not talking about something you deserve punishment for. I'm talking about those times when you don't deserve the punishment. However, verse 16, if you suffer, what's those next three words? If you suffer as a Christian. In other words, that's the reason you're suffering. If you suffer as a Christian. You're suffering because you claim the name of Christ. You're suffering because of your association with Jesus. And he says, if you suffer because you are claiming a relationship with Jesus Christ, this is what he says. Do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Praise God that you bear the name of Christ. Then he says something. You'll have to read it carefully. 
Or it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. That is often misquoted, by the way. People sometimes will talk about, you know, America or whatever. And it's time that judgment begins in the family of God. I understand the intention, but that's not what that verse says. We'll talk about that in a second. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What's he talking about here? These verses suggest three questions that we need to ask ourselves as we face trials. I'm just going to give them to you real quickly. not really going to talk about questions we need to ask ourselves as we face trials. Um, Remember, this is under the heading number three. Christians should examine their lives in the midst of trials. So how do we examine our lives in the midst of trials? Three questions. Number one is this. Is this trial due to some known sin in my life? Is this trial, this experience, this suffering, is it due to some sin in my life? Uh, That's what he's referencing in verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. You're not suffering because of sin. That's question number one. Question number two, how can I glorify God in this trial? If there's no known sin and I'm suffering because I took a stand for, for God, how can I glorify God in this trial. Verse 16, let's read it again. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Can I remind you when Peter and John were arrested in the book of Acts and they were beaten, Sanhedrin challenged them and threatened them and uh, they, they literally experienced persecution at the hands of the religious leaders. And though they were beaten severely and jailed, Acts chapter 5, we won't return there. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 says, They went on their way, quote, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That was Peter, the guy who wrote this letter. Peter and John. After they were beaten, after they were uh, placed in prison, after they were threatened, they left the Sanhedrin once they were released rejoicing that they had been worthy to suffer for His name. That was Peter. And now, years later, Peter writes with that same perspective in verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. By the way, you know this probably, but let me tell you real quickly that the name Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. This is one of the three times. Now, we talk about Christian a lot. But in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in different places in the New Testament, they were not known so much as Christians as they were followers of Jesus, followers of the way. Uh, different, they had different titles they were known as. But uh, they were first called Christians in Antioch. The Bible tells us the book of Acts. And it's interesting that more than likely, the way that text reads, more than likely, they were called Christians not as a compliment, but it was a term of derision. They were being criticized. Those are little Christ. They knew that they were identified as followers of Jesus, followers of Christ. And, and so the, the people in Antioch would laugh at them and ridicule them uh, because they were little Christ Christians. 
So this term even was born, this idea of Christian, the term was born out of suffering and out of persecution. I told you three questions. Here's the third one. Am I seeking to win the lost? This is where the verses get a little confusing. And so let me read the verse again and then just make a couple of comments. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not what? For those who do not obey the gospel. Peter draws their attention to those who do not obey the gospel. What's the outcome going to be for them? You know what Peter's saying in verse 17 and 18? He's basically saying, let me, let me tell you something. If you experience as a child of God, if you experience the initial stages of God's judgment on sin as a, as a child of God, you, you begin to experience a little bit of that. If God uses severe trials to purge sin from the lives of the righteous, if if that's what God does, if He uses trials to purge sin from our lives as Christians, think how worse it's going to be on the day of judgment for the godless, for the sinners. That's the point he's making. Look at it. If it is time for it, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will? If it's hard on us. If we have sometimes experienced the judgment of God, if it's hard on us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is hard for the righteous to be saved. What will the outcome be? Or what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? All right, quickly, let me go to number four. Talk to me real quickly. Give me numbers one, two, and three so I can take a drink here. What's number one? Alright, Christians should expect trials. What's number two? Christians should rejoice in trials. What's number three? Yeah, Christians should examine your lives in the midst of trials. Here's number four, and with this we'll close. Christians should commit themselves to God in the midst of trials. Should commit themselves to God in the midst of trials. Here's how Peter says it as he closes out chapter 4, what we call chapter 4, verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. Such practical advice as he closes out this chapter. The word commit, and it may say in another translation, entrust, or some other word there, It is a banking term in the Greek language, a banking term that meant really to deposit one's valuables to another for safekeeping. When you take your your, your money to the bank, you commit it to the bank. You deposit it for, for safekeeping. That's the word that Peter uses here. Those who suffer according to God's will should, here's the way you should respond, you should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. Peter says, look, can I give you some closing advice? This is how you endure suffering. The way that you endure suffering is to commit yourself to your faithful creator. And to continue to do good. This is the only time in the New Testament where God is called the creator. 
The only time in the New Testament where God is referenced as the Creator. And I think Peter is making the case that if God created the universe by the word of His power, then He's able to guard what you commit to Him. If He has the power to create everything, He has the power to guard what you commit to Him. So commit to Him your life. And then I love the way it ends. And just continue to do good. Just continue to live out your faith. Commit your life to Him in the midst of suffering and continue to do good. Continue to live for Him. I can't think of a better way to approach it. Two things. I'm going to commit my life to Him. And I'm going to continue to live for Him. We're out of time, but Paul said to Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Second Peter 1.12 I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Let me pray with you. Father, thank You for this Word that is so timely. Even though we've never gone through the suffering that Peter endured or the suffering that the people he wrote to endured, thank You that we can learn also about those difficult times, those hard times in our lives. And You can remind us from Your Word of the proper perspective on how to live through those hard times that we sometimes feel like we don't deserve. Help us to commit our life to You even in the midst of the difficult season. May we commit our life to You. And may we continue to do good. May it be in the name of Jesus. Amen.